I'm so excited today to be joined by Jason Pfeiffer. He is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, the only magazine I subscribe to, and he has a fantastic letter in it every single time, but also he's the podcast host of Build for Tomorrow. So thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Okay, so three things I'm so excited to hear your thoughts on. Mm -hmm. This first one, because you are a creative and an entrepreneur, but you also, via the types of work you do, know a lot of entrepreneurs. You hear a lot of their stories and have lots of those great conversations. For entrepreneurs or creatives who tend to be successful, prolific, mentally stable, how do they create some emotional boundaries with their work or do they? Is that helpful or is it not helpful? Is it better to just have your entire identity wrapped into your work? I don't think that there's any one right answer to that question. It's a very personal question. And there are some people who need some kind of separation. And there are other people who I think very much identify as their work. And I don't think that either of those are good or bad or correct or wrong. I think the question really is, are you happy with the decisions or maybe you didn't make a conscious decision? Are you just happy with the way that you're doing things? And if you're not, well, then maybe it's time for a change. And if you are, then I don't see any reason to change unless you see that it's harming your life or other things in some way. I mean, we should all have some kind of balance to ourselves, right? And just because you identify with your work doesn't mean that your work necessarily needs to consume you. I love Randy Zuckerberg's philosophy on this. She wrote this book called Pick Five. The argument is like, you can't have everything, but you can have some of it every day. So she says there are five things in life. There's work, there's friends, there's family, there's sleep, and there's fitness. And she says, look, you can't do all five of those every single day, but you could do three of them every day. And then every day you could have a mix of different Three. So maybe one day you get in some good sleep and you do a lot of work and you see your family. And maybe the next day is a fitness day and you also do some work and you see your friends. And then the next day, you know, you sort of mix it up. And I really like that idea. We need to start measuring ourselves in different slices. And sometimes to say, oh, I am consumed by my work. Does that mean that you're consumed by your work 24-7? Does it mean that you're consumed by your work 9 to 5 or 9 to 9 or whatever it is? Are there other ways in which you can think about the time that you have and the way to use it so that you create some kind of balance that feels good for you and enables you to get what you want out of life, which surely for all of us isn't just work, but work can be a very big part of it. So you need to find that individual balance for you. I certainly don't want to put some kind of moral judgment on it, but I think that we should always be evaluating whether or not what we're doing is working for us. I feel like especially during this pandemic where a lot of businesses shut down or they failed, and for the entrepreneur maybe who has so much of their identity wrapped up in the success of that business. The business's success is their success. The business failure is their failure. When things don't go well, how do you see people cope with that or come out willing to try again on the other side? I think we're making a mistake if we're identifying ourselves as 
something that is changeable. So if you identify yourself by your business, your business is changeable. It's changeable in many ways. It could fail. It could also wildly succeed and become something completely different, something that maybe you're not even happy with. Anything could happen. So I think that people need to identify with something very, very core to them that what they're doing right now is fueled by, but that so many other things could be fueled by too. I'll give you an example. I don't identify myself, I used to, but I don't now as a magazine editor. Prior to that, I was a newspaper reporter. It's a mistake to identify as that kind of thing. Why? Because it could change at any time. It's flapping in the wind. And if if that's what I am, then I'm flapping in the wind too. But what if I could identify something very core to me, something that I could articulate in just a sentence, 10 words or less, that is what I am and no amount of change can alter it. For me, that is, I tell stories in my own voice. Doesn't matter where I do that. Doesn't matter if that's in a magazine, a podcast, on stage, writing a book, whatever it is, there are a million ways to do that. I tell stories in my own voice. Take one expression of that away from me and I'll just find other expressions. And imagine the difference between being an entrepreneur whose business failed and having identified with the business and now feeling like a failure, or being an entrepreneur whose business failed, but who thinks of themselves as a builder. What am I? I'm a builder. What do I do? I build. I built that thing. It went really well for a while. Then it stopped working for some reason or another. That's okay. I'm a builder. I will rebuild. Right. Once you are down to your core that way, you are so much less susceptible to redefinition. If you're struggling with how to even get down to that for yourself, I, I advise a kind of three-step process. Number one, imagine somebody walks up to you at a party and says, what do you do? What's your answer? I'm going to say your answer is probably something very, very surface level, very oriented around what you do. I operate this business. I work in IT. I am a children's party clown, whatever it is you are. Now run the same experiment, except you can't say anything that you just said before. Instead, talk about the skills necessary to do the thing that you just thought about, right? You know, if you're a project manager, what do you do? Well, I, what I do is that I understand the needs of lots of different teams and then I coordinate with them. And to do that, I need to be a quick study and understand people. And I need to be able to see a big picture, even though I'm in a small picture, you know, whatever. So that's number two. What are we doing? We're just sort of trying to baby step our way away from the normal way in which we describe ourselves so that we can stop identifying by the thing that we do. We start identifying by why we do it. So now step three, run that experiment again, but you can't say any of that stuff that you just said. You can't say what it is that you exactly do, and you can't say the skills necessary. Now you're down to the reason that you do it, the why. Why do you do this? And for me, I realized eventually, the thing that I'm excited about is when I'm telling stories in my own voice. The thing that I'm not excited about is when I'm doing somebody else's voice, when I'm doing somebody else's work, when I'm telling stories and I'm not really in control of it. I've done all that. I've worked at magazines where I was not really in control of the work that I was doing. I hated it. Now I understand what fuels me and what doesn't, and I can start to make really good practical decisions about that, and I can know where I'm best suited. I think that's so helpful, especially creating that disconnect between our identity and our outcomes, because we don't have 100% control of our outcomes. When I see people who have such a strong identity to their outcomes, like it's an intense and kind of terrifying thing because their identity is always at stake. 
I have a question about imposter syndrome and from two angles. One for people starting out, it's such a weird, scary thing to be like, oh, and now I am this thing because there's a vulnerability there almost because then you're opening up yourself to people going, really? Huh? You think you can do that? Never really saw you (laughs) as that kind of person. But then also maybe your thoughts on the other side, especially for those entrepreneurs or creatives that were okay, like from A to B, and now they have they have to grow into this new position, uh, this new phase of their business, and are maybe struggling with identifying of like, oh wait, now I'm a, I'm a real CEO. Like I'm not just like a scrappy little startup. How do you cope with that identity change and that inner critic? Well, first, know that everybody's going through it. And so I think part of our challenge is that we feel like this is an experience that's solely ours and therefore needs to be hidden and is embarrassing. But that's not the case. I remember I had lunch a couple of years ago with the CEO of IAC, IAC being the gigantic conglomerate of internet projects. Like, you know, IAC owns everything. They did or do, I don't know, they keep spinning things off, Vimeo, Match.com, OkCupid, The Daily Beast, right? They own it all. Multi-billion dollar company. And I can't remember how we got on this subject, but I talked. I was talking with Joey, the CEO, about how I didn't feel like I had any idea what I was doing when I first took over the magazine and became a leader. And he said, Something like, well, nobody ever knows what they're doing. Nobody ever feels like they know what they're doing, right? And it is so important to hear that from people who it appears like they certainly do know what they're doing, because you get to discover that even though people rise up to the top, they never quite lose that sense that they are just, you know, another person. There's a random person who got to this job, right? I mean, like, it's not like I wake up every day and like feel every accomplishment and feel the way that other people might perceive me. I wake up every day feeling basically exactly the same as I did for the past 40 years. You know, you see things through the same eyes and you have the same thoughts and you have the same memories and you're just as not entirely convinced that you know what the hell you're doing as you were a decade prior. But what you have done, what I have done, is I have at least proven to myself that when I go out and do something, even when I don't feel like I know what I'm doing, the world does not end. The more that you can do this for yourself, the more that you can just put yourself in, you know, you start with small things, and then you can go for larger and larger things. But somebody I talked to once compared it to that scene in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where Harrison Ford is standing at this giant chasm and he has to cross it and there is an invisible bridge underneath of him. You know, do you remember he like throws a little sand and the sand lands on the invisible bridge and he can see that the invisible bridge is there, but it's still absolutely terrifying to walk across this chasm on something that you can't see. But you put your foot out and your foot lands and you can feel something underneath even though you can't see it. Then you put the next foot out and then you keep going. And that's kind of what it feels like. I am now in situations where I am talking to extremely powerful and impressive people, and I'm making large decisions that impact very public things. I don't feel really like I know what I'm doing, but I do have the memory of all the times where I've done this before and it worked out okay. 
And that makes me feel like, you know, if I do this maybe a little bigger and a little louder and a little more confident, it's probably going to work out too. So you baby step your way over the invisible chasm, and that's the most anybody can ever do. What advice would you give for the person who is baby stepping their way out there, but that worst fear happens in that someone on the internet points out the very thing that they feel insecure about? How do we cope with that kind of criticism that just hits us right in the worst spot? Right. Well, I mean, so first of all, that just can't be your worst fear because it's going to happen. So if you're right, if my worst fear is that I w- is that I wake up and I have breakfast in the morning, that's a terrible worst fear because I, it's going to happen. I'm going to have breakfast in the morning. So if that's my fear, I'm in trouble, right? People are going to criticize. They just are. So build that into the expectation set. And then when it happens, I mean, look, people criticize me all the time and I take it into, I, I try to, here's what I, I mean, usually I just don't look, right? I, most of the times I just don't, I don't look. I don't look at the comments on Facebook under stories that I wrote. <laughs> Why would I do that? Just yeah. no value to it. But if I see something, maybe somebody reaches out directly to me, who knows, I will read it and I will think, does this person have a point? And most of the time the answer is no, they do not have a point. They are looking for something to be angry about. That's a lot of people on the internet, and that's okay, but maybe they have a point. And if they do have a point, it may be painful, but it might be worth taking seriously. I went through this with my own, I, I went through this, I've gone through this many times, but one of the things I went through it with was my editor's letter that you referenced in the beginning of this conversation. My editor's letter, when I started as the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, I knew that I wanted to write like a real column. I didn't want to write, like, like most editors' letters are just like table of contents in essay form. I don't understand why other editors do that. It's such a wasted opportunity. So I, I knew that I wanted to write like a real column for people. I didn't know what advice to offer them. You know, I'm a media guy. I come from media. And though I have become very entrepreneurial, I mean, like I have my own little media production company now, and I do a whole bunch of other things. At the time, I really just thought of myself as a, as a media person, not as an entrepreneur. That came later. And so you now here I am talking to entrepreneurs. What on earth do I tell them? I felt very, very uncomfortable with it. And so I wrote a column. My very first column was about how we made the decision to put a certain story in the magazine. I just thought that would be interesting. I'll give people some transparency. I'm a media guy. I'm talking to entrepreneurs. I bet you want to understand the media. Here's some transparency. People liked it. So the next month I did the same thing and still I got some okay feedback on it. And then the third month I did the same thing. And then I started to get angry emails and the emails were like, Hey there, Mr. Big Shot. Like, you know, you're, uh, what if I don't want to be in your stupid magazine? Why is every column that you write about how to get in your magazine? Like, why is it all about how to pitch you? I don't, I don't care about pitching you. I mean, at first I ignored these things because I was like, are they right? No, they're not right. I'm writing a good column. And then I realized maybe they're right. And it was really when I engaged with somebody, sometimes I will I will engage with people who send me things that are that are upset so long as they seem reasonable. I don't try to, you know, you don't <laughs> want to engage with an idiot. But if somebody seems reasonable, then sometimes you can learn quite a lot by going back and forth with them. And so I I remember I responded to somebody and explained where I was coming from. And they wrote back and they said, look, that makes a lot of sense. I actually would think I would really like that column if it was somewhere else in the magazine. Like if it was just a regular media column, I think that that would be pretty interesting. But the problem is that when I open the magazine, the very first thing that I hit is the editor's letter. 
I expect it to have like a big idea. Like I expect it to set the tone for the rest of the magazine. And the tone that you keep setting over and over again is here's how to get in the magazine. And that just, it's turning me off. And I, and that made so much sense to me. That was not something that I understood, but now I was seeing this through my reader's eyes. And frankly, it pushed me to think more broadly about what it is that I have to offer my readers. And I went through a big evolutionary process because I did that. So I'm really glad that people were upset that I was doing the same thing over and over again at the very beginning. And I'm really glad that I listened to them. I'm also really glad that there have been many times where people have emailed me because they didn't like something of mine and I just ignored it because I didn't think that they were right or I didn't think that they had a point. So take a look. You know, it can be a little bruising, but that's okay. Good thing about us is that when we, you know, the bruise goes away, you bruise and you heal. So what would you suggest for an individual or a company when this feedback, this failure is magnified? We've all either watched it go down on the internet or we've experienced it when all of a sudden 80% of the audience feels like they're angry. They're angry because we actually made a mistake or they're angry because they perceived we made a mistake and the just kind of hits the fan. What would you suggest for an individual or a company? when all of a sudden the whole internet feels like it turned on you? Well, I don't know that I'm going to tell you anything that is revolutionary here, but every time that I've talked to someone who's gone through something like this, the answer has always been the same, which is transparency. Just absolute transparency. I mean, I'm just sort of rifling through conversations in my head. I I interviewed the CEO of Home Depot about when Home Depot had a massive data breach. What did they do? Absolute transparency like over-communicate, super open with their audience about everything that happened. I remember interviewing the CEO of Cameo about about their first gigantic scandal, which was when um, I think it was like some white supremacists had tricked Brett Favre, the football player, into, into making a video that like said all of their code words or whatever. And it was a big embarrassment. And what's the answer? Absolute transparency. Transparency with the audience, transparency with every stakeholder. These are the stories that I hear over and over and over again. People want one thing more than anything else, and that is to feel heard. That's what they want. They don't want you to be perfect. I mean, I guess they do, but they don't expect it. It's not perfection is not possible. What they want is that when they're upset, they want to know that you know they're upset and that you're acting upon it. The times in which companies have failed in these moments are always the times in which they didn't properly communicate with their customer. The most recent one from when we are talking is Robinhood when they stopped trading of those stocks, uh, including one that I threw some money in, which was BlackBerry, which I took a big loss on. Thanks a lot, Robinhood. And they totally botched it. Totally. Right? Like what everyone ultimately learned, which is that Robinhood literally did not have the money to continue operating because as it turns out, like trades that you make on Robinhood don't actually go through for two days. Like who knew? I didn't know about that. But th- that was the reason, right? The reason was that like they were they had a billions of dollars in losses and they had they had no money, and that's why they had to make the change. But nobody knew that because instead they just sent out these ridiculous nonsense emails that were completely unclear and looked like they were sidestepping everything, and everyone was getting furious at them. I don't know that they ever actually solved the problem. Like instead. I mean, I, I learned about what happened through reporting, right? Like Planet Money did a great episode and the New York Times had a, had a piece. Like that's how I came to understood Robin Hood instead of Robin Hood itself explaining it to me. And, and that makes me forever feel bad about Robin Hood. I forever don't trust that company because they weren't able to communicate with me. And that is a existential issue. So the mistake is not the problem. The communication is where you win or lose. 
I love it. Thank you so, so much. Where should people go to find you on the internet? Sure. Well, I'll give you two things. At Hey Pfeiffer, H-E-Y-F-E-I-F-E-R on Instagram is a great place to find me. Also, if you want to go to jasonpfeiffer.com and you can go up, look at the very top and see a thing that says free training. And I have a free audio course on how to find opportunity and change and how to be more adaptable. So check that out. I love it. And I'm subscribed to your newsletter. So I will put a little plug in for that too, because it's pretty fun. (laughs) I appreciate that. When you subscribe to the, or when you get the free training, you subscribe to the newsletter too. Perfect. Thank you so much. You bet. I think another great example of the fact that you don't have to be perfect to make progress. You just have to be a little bit more courageous every day because adventure awaits.